You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Do you remember the first time you worked as an advisor that you worked with a same-sex couple? Yes. So what were you feeling about that? I didn't really feel any type of way about it because I didn't ever do that until after same-sex marriage was legalized. Mm -hmm. There were some kind of silly things that I had to think of that didn't, that were easy to, to understand in a heterosexual relationship. So like, you know, I just always put the man's name first on everything pretty much unless the rare case where the, the wife is just way more involved and I have a relationship with the wife and I, I don't talk to the husband really. Okay. And, and then, you know, I'll put Amy and John instead of John and Amy on everything. Yeah. Because I did that once I put, you know, Chris and Linda and Chris got mad at me. Oh, okay. Chris was like, Hey man, like 90% of this is her money. Okay. And I don't think it's right that you always put my name first. Yeah, I would. And I, I was would like, ha- okay, well, fine. It's Linda and Chris. But with a gay couple, it's like it's not obvious. So there were some little things, but I, I didn't have to do anything from a technical perspective because mm-hmm. their marriage was recognized. So they were able to be treated like everyone else. I have talked with them um, about that since and gone, so what was, you know, what was it like? And it was fascinating the, the stories that they would tell me about not being able to put each other as beneficiaries on certain accounts, not being able to get certain rates on certain investments because they couldn't do joint investments because they weren't married and just all sorts of things that they had to navigate that they now don't because it's legal. You know, I started doing this work before the Obergefell decision. And so I had my first client that was in a same-sex relationship was not out and didn't but you knew it was pretty obvious okay. um, to to me. You know, he would put his friend as yeah. a beneficiary who he said rented a room from him. But he he could just it was it was pretty obvious to me what was going on, and that was confirmed after he passed. He passed away, and his partner shared that with me. But then to see that evolve over time to where same-sex couples could get married, it changed the financial planning landscape on things you had to do to navigate through the the complications of not being able to have the benefits of marriage from tax and estate planning and things like that. So it's really been interesting to see how that's changed. I made a, made a big mistake one time where I was speaking with a man who was a prospective client over the phone and I said, are you married? And then that has a significant impact on a lot of other conversations we're going to have, whether or not you're married. Sure, right? it matters a lot. Yeah. So he says, yep, I'm married. And I go, what's your wife's name? And he says, um, my husband is Bill. And I was like, oh, and nothing. I mean, nothing made me feel worse. I I, I wasn't trying to insult the guy, you know, but I couldn't help but think that he felt insulted. And he gets that a lot. Oh, you know, maybe. But now I don't say that. I'll say, what's your spouse's name? What's your spouse's name? And there's one man who's responsible for for all of these changes that we're talking about. And that's Jim Obergefell. Jim Obergefell is our guest on the podcast today. He was the named plaintiff from the landmark marriage equality case Obergefell versus Hodges, which effectively legalized same-sex marriage throughout the entire of the United States in 2015. 
He is currently a speaker on equality and civil rights issues. He sits on the board of advisors at the Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C., and the National Advisory Council of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Historical Society. He co-founded several years ago Equality Vines, the first cause-based wine label to support organizations devoted to equality for all. And he co-authored the book Love Wins, The Lovers and Lawyers Who Fought in Landmark Case for Marriage Equality. When we talked with Jim, we covered Everything related to his big decision to pursue the Obergefell versus Hodges landmark marriage equality case. And there were more decisions than I uh, anticipated before I met Jim, starting with his relationship with his husband, John Arthur, dealing with getting that recognized not only within his home state of Ohio, but throughout the country. We talked about ensuring how your decisions can stay in tune with what matters to you. And geez, Jim has got to be the most shining example of someone who lives a life where he makes decisions in alignment with his values. It was really incredible to notice that in our conversation. Uh, We talked about how to be consistent in those decisions, and it starts with deciding who you are, something that Jim did a long time ago, and it's impacted all of our lives now. Stick around for this conversation. You're going to learn a lot, and you're going to see a great example of deciding who you are. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Jim, nice to have you. <laughs> well, I'm thrilled to be on Sanger. Sean, thanks for inviting me to, to be here today. Hey, good to, good to see you again. I remember we uh, we had a chance to meet and talk in uh, in Cincinnati, so it's great to see you again. Thanks for being on. Likewise. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. I don't think that I have, we've had a guest on this podcast whose name I've heard more often. <laughs> and I know we've not had a guest on this podcast whose name we have heard mispronounced more often. (laughs) (laughs) So true. So true. You know, people worry about mispronouncing my last name. And I always say, you know, I've had at this point, 56 years of getting used to it. It doesn't bother me. And I also say President Obama can't pronounce it correctly. So I'm not going to get upset if anyone else mispronounces it. Yeah, I mean, if if the president of the United States is mispronouncing my name, I'm happy. Yeah, something exactly. went right for you. Yeah, you did you did something really right or really wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, the I have heard your name a million times, especially recently. Obergefell yeah. case, Obergefell, not Obergefell, not Obergefell. Four syllables, Obergefell. <laughs> I had heard the impacts of the case which legalized same-sex marriage across the country. But I had never really heard your story. And that is an interesting, fascinating story of how we got to the point where we've had such a transformational change in our country. Yeah, you know, most people, I think you're not alone in that, Sanger. Most people don't really know the full story behind it. They they hear the name Obergefell and it's become shorthand for marriage equality, but they don't really know the story behind it. And I think one of the great things is it's one of those reminders that these Supreme Court cases, the names, there's a story that goes along with them. And I love sharing the story because it's something I never expected to experience. And it led me to the highest court in the land and being part of making the world a better place. So yeah, 
stories are at the heart of every court case. And I think ours is pretty special. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how we got started on the road that ended up with you having your case in the Supreme Court. The very beginning of the case or the very beginning of Well, so, so you got, I, I, and you correct me, this is your story. You were married in Massachusetts? Okay, I'll start with yeah. that. So in 2013, um, John, my partner of almost 21 years, was dying of ALS. And we knew his death was coming sooner rather than later. And on June 26, 2013, I was standing next to his bed holding his hand he had lost all all physical ability. He was in at-home hospice care, but I was standing there holding his hand when the news came out that the Supreme Court, in their decision in United States versus Windsor, struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. Now, John and I had talked about getting married early on in our relationship in the mid-90s, yeah. but we just never thought it would be an option, and we agreed that for us, marriage had to mean something legal. We didn't want just a symbolic ceremony. So here I am standing there next to his bed, holding his hands as this news sinks in that with this decision, at least for the finally, the federal government would recognize same-sex marriages. And we hadn't talked about this. We hadn't even thought about it, but I just leaned over, hugged and kissed him and said, let's get married. And luckily he said yes. But as I mentioned, he was dying of ALS and he had no physical ability and we were living in Ohio. Ohio was one of the many states with their own state-level Defense of Marriage Act, so we could not get a marriage license or get married in Ohio. So we had to figure out, how do we take this dying man to another state to do something that millions of others simply take for granted and assume they have the right to do? So we settled on Maryland, and that was for one really simple reason. Maryland was the only state that did not require both of us to appear in person to apply for the marriage license. And my my goal in whole, this whole thing was to make sure I kept John as safe, as comfortable as possible, and at home as much as possible. So because of Maryland's laws, I could fly to Maryland in advance, get the marriage license, and then come home. And then John and I could f- go together to get married and then come right back. So it made things better and easier and more comfortable for John. So we knew where we were going. I called John's Aunt Paulette, who had told us years earlier that She thought we represented marriage better than any other couple she knew. And if we ever had the chance to get married, she wanted to officiate. So Aunt Paulette had gone to the internet where she clicked the ordain me button because she was more optimistic about our chances. So I called her, said, are you still up for this? And she said, absolutely. Well, we had to figure out how do we get John to Maryland? And I could have put him in his wheelchair inside our wheelchair minivan, but that would have just been really uncomfortable for him. So we decided no. For the same reason, I wasn't willing to put him in an ambulance for that long of a ride. And I couldn't take him to the airport to fly on Delta or American. So that left us a chartered medical jet. And I started getting quotes. Not surprisingly, those things aren't that cheap. And we could afford it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. And we could afford it. But I went to Facebook and I thought, you know, maybe one of our friends or family member will know somebody somebody who can help mitigate the cost. So I just posted on Facebook that we were going to get married in Maryland. We had to charter a medical jet. And did anyone know someone? Our family and friends started commenting, no, Jim, sorry, we don't. But you and John deserve to get married and we want to be part of making it happen. So please accept this gift of money. And our family and friends covered the entire $14,000 cost of the chartered medical jet. Wow. 
So on July 11th, 2013, John and I flew from Cincinnati to Baltimore, Washington International Airport, along with Aunt Paulette, and we landed. We parked on the tarmac and never left the airplane. Now, the, the two pilots and the nurse, they did leave the airplane so we could have some privacy, and we were joined by a photographer from the Cincinnati Inquirer because a friend of ours was on the Inquirer editorial board, and she was pushing the paper to come out in, marriage, in support of marriage equality. So she had asked if we were okay with her writing a story about us. So he joined us in the airplane, and we just were on the ground for more, no more than 45 minutes, and I got to take John's hand. We got to hold each other's hands, and we got to say those words we had wanted to say for so long. I thee wed. I do. And it really did make us feel completely different. It made us feel better, more complete, happier. And I have to tell you, in the, the days that followed, we said the word husband hundreds of times a day. I bet. Almost every yeah. sentence we used husband. And that was all we wanted to do, just get married and live out John's remaining days as husband and husband. Well, because of that newspaper article, we were connected with a local civil rights attorney who came to our home five days after we got married. And in that conversation, he pulled out a blank Ohio death certificate. And he said, do you guys understand that when John dies, Ohio will fill this form out incorrectly because Ohio will not recognize your marriage. So John's last record as a person will say he died as an unmarried person. And Jim, your name won't be there as a surviving spouse. Broke our hearts. But I think more importantly, it made us angry. So when Al Gerhardstein, the civil rights attorney, asked us if we wanted to do something about it. We talked about it very quickly. Al says it took us less than a minute to come to a decision. We said yes. So we sued the state of Ohio in federal district court to demand recognition of John's, of our lawful marriage on John's death certificate at the time he died. So what motivated you? Yeah, what what motivated you to? Obviously, I can empathize with. I'm not married. Never been married. I can only imagine. If I'm sitting there and I know that the person that I've committed my life to and my forever to and said, till death do us part, I'm riding with you. And then the government says, we basically like act like that doesn't count. You know, Uh, that would that would that would hurt me more than anything, I think. Um, Was there anything that motivated you other than that feeling? It was the the feeling of hurt, the anger, but it really, I think the underlying thing to that was we just simply wanted to be respected. We wanted John to die with dignity. We wanted John Mm. to die a married man. We had lived in Ohio. I mean, I'm born and raised in Ohio. John moved back to Ohio at the age of seven. He was born in Chicago. We were, in essence, lifelong Ohioans, and we wanted to exist in the eyes of the law. We wanted our marriage to mean something to the government, to the state we paid taxes to. So for us, it was, it was pain, it was anger, and it was just really this, the heart of it was, we want to exist. We do not want to be erased. That was really, I think, at the heart of everything. We just simply wanted to be. We wanted to exist. Was there anything that caused you pause in that decision? Because that's got to be a big decision in anybody's life to say, I'm going to sue the state. Uh, that for I, anything. Yeah, for anything yeah. that I live in. Right. I mean, that's a that's a big decision to say, I'm going to do that. Now, you said you made that pretty quickly, but there, there was probably a lot of emotion in there. But was there anything that caused you pause before 
undertaking that? Absolutely. You know, in my wildest dreams, I had never thought I would sue the state of Ohio. You know, we sued the governor and the attorney general. Never thought that would be something I would do. But when Al asked us if we wanted to do something, and by do something, he meant file a lawsuit, I will say the things that gave me pause. One, I knew this would take me away from John. Mm. Maybe not an incredible amount of time, but I knew there there would be things in the course of this that would take me away from John. But John very clearly said, Jim, I think we should do this. And he gave me his permission, his okay, to take time away from him because he thought it was the right thing to do. The other thing, not surprisingly, one of the things that popped in my mind was, well, how much is this going to cost us? Because when you think about any lawsuit, especially one where you're suing the government, dollar signs popped up in my mind. And Al Gerhardstein To his credit, he very quickly, without me even saying anything, put that fear to rest. He said, Jim and John and Jim, this won't cost you anything. He said, we will do this pro bono. And when we win, because he expected to win, when we win, we will file for reimbursement for all of our costs from the state of Ohio. Mm, Okay. Okay. So he took took the monetary decision off the table for Yeah, I didn't even know that was a possible outcome. Right. And, you know, that was good news because we really wanted to do this. We, we, we were angry, we were upset and we wanted to do this, but the thought of a lawsuit against the state of Ohio, I mean, I was seeing bills in the millions and I had nothing to base that on, but that's where my mind went. So the fact that he took that off made that easier for us. So for me, it really was, I'm going to be, I'm going to, be taken away from John at times. Yeah. And also we're putting our story, our relationship out in the world, in the news. But I have to be honest, there wasn't a whole lot of that that gave me pause. And I think part of that is John and I, in our 21 years together, we were always open with everyone we ran into, whether that was coworkers, <clears throat> neighbors, people out in you know in a grocery store in public we never hid who we are and the fact that we were a couple so i think that because we had lived so long that way that made that decision of going public and our taking our relationship public made that a little bit easier to make yeah you had already been open so there was no sort of wall that was going to have to come down Correct. so was to pursue it, it when you I want, I'm interested in, in that also, you know, I mean, we live even today in a post Obergefell decision world. There's still people who live in the, you know, Mm -hmm. closet, so to speak, that had to be its own difficult choice, or at least not a choice that everyone obviously make. How did you decide to, to live that way? To be open about it. You know, I'm not really sure. Other than when I met John, I was closeted. I was I was still in the closet when I first met John, and he was out and very comfortable in his own skin. And I think part of part of that was meeting him and seeing how someone who was gay could be comfortable in who they were. And I think that was part of it. But it was also when I came out to my dad, and my dad yeah. said, "Jim, all I've ever wanted is for you to be happy." And my entire family had that same reaction. So for me, my family, my close friends, their support and their, Jim, 
this isn't an issue. You're still Jim. This doesn't change anything. That also helped it make it easier for me to just be who I was and to be who I was with John as a couple. And then it was also, you know, when we bought our first house, our next door neighbors, a gay couple, a lesbian couple behind us. So from early on in our relationship, we we were around people like us. And we saw people who lived their lives without fear, without apology. And it just was an easy thing for us to do. And John was this amazing person who could meet and make friends with anyone. And we had such an enormous social circle because of that. And these were all people who knew us, who knew we were a couple. They knew that from the start. So our life really was just built around we're together. We're a couple. We're not hiding yeah. it. We're not going to apologize for it. And we actually worked together in three different jobs at the same company, doing the same thing. And everybody at work, our bosses, our teammates, everyone else knew we were a couple. It just was never an issue for us. And I know how fortunate I am to be able to say that because yeah. far too many people can't. Especially, you know, in the 90s when your relationship started, that was... right. I'm sure even less common than mm -hmm. than it was in the 2010s, you know, when you're making this decision to to pursue the court case. Absolutely. Um, so back to the case, I'm I'm fascinated with the story because it's such a it, it sounds so exclusively personal. Mm -hmm. You know, it it but did you think at the time of the, or how much did you think at the time of the impact that it would have when you won, right? You say you go into it knowing you're, you're going to win. You had, had to think, well, this is going to change everything. Well, you know, when we first filed our lawsuit in federal district court, you know, John was nearing the end of his life. I mean, he lived only three months after our first win in federal district court. And when we started this, my life, my world really revolved around John. It was the four walls of the room where John's bed was. That was my world. And I, I do have a very distinct memory of in that first conversation with Al, when we decided to do this, my high school government class piped up in the back of my mind saying, well, Jim, this is federal court. There's always the possibility you could go all the way. And I remember thinking that, but I also remember kind of not, not dismissing it, but saying, I can't think about that now because I was so focused on John. I will say the the focus started to expand or the realization of what, what the impact this could have started to expand after we won in federal court and meeting people around Cincinnati because Cincinnati was such, was I mean, Cincinnati was known as the, the city without pity. It was considered the most gay, unfriendly city in the nation. And going around that city and seeing people and they were just so excited that this story about marriage equality was from the city of Cincinnati and meeting parents who were thankful that we were doing something that had the potential to make life better for their kids. So it started slowly to expand, really not just knowing it on a rational level, but on a very emotional level that, yeah, this really has the the ability to impact so much more than just John and me. And it really was when we lost 
um, in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals because the state of Ohio appealed our win in federal district court after John died, and we lost in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. We'd been consolidated with other cases. I'm assuming that Al was convinced that you guys would be would would prevail mm-hmm. because the state of Ohio in failing to recognize your marriage was at the all at the same time also recognizing other marriages from other states that they didn't allow to happen in their state. Is that is that a fair fair summary of it? Sean, that is the perfect summary because that okay. that was that was our legal argument because in Ohio first cousins cannot get a marriage license and get married. Same thing with an underage couple. They cannot get a marriage license or get married. However, in states where that is legal, where they can get a marriage license and get married, if they do that, as soon as they stepped foot into Ohio, Ohio immediately recognized their marriage, even though it's a marriage that could not be entered into in the state of Ohio. So our legal argument was, Ohio, you are creating separate classes of citizens, and that's unconstitutional. Sure. And that seems pretty obvious to me, and in, in that I'm guessing that Al thought so as well, mm-hmm. they're going to appeal that. And, and what under what basis do they appeal that? Because that seems pretty obvious. Well, once they appealed and once we were consolidated from the ca- with cases from Kentucky, Tennessee, and Michigan, the arguments all of the states used really boiled down to a couple things. Ohio consistently said, well, our state Defense of Marriage Act, of course, is constitutional because a majority of voters voted for it. Okay. And I remember Al's response to that in our it was first a bad hearing. reason. <laughs> well, his response was, well, the surest way to abridge the rights of a minority is to allow the majority to vote on it. Right. Yeah. So that that was the argument they used. And then also the, the arguments that never made any sense to me whatsoever, and this was even brought up in the Supreme Court, was that if we if States allowed same-sex couples to get married. Opposite-sex couples would suddenly stop getting married. And even more inexplicably, opposite-sex couples would stop having children. I kid you not, those were the arguments used by the states in this case. Under what data was that argument being made? None. (laughs) (laughs) It it was purely... it was a made-up reason yeah. to appeal to emotion and to appeal to I don't know what, but yeah, there yeah. was nothing okay. to support that. Right. So it sounds like while you were making a really tough, I, maybe it wasn't tough for you, but a big important decision mm-hmm. in your own life and relationship to pursue the case, it was really only an option because of really bad decision-making by the state of Ohio. It seems like if their goal was, we just don't want to let gay people get married in Ohio. Like that's, that's, right. the, that's our end goal and we're going to stick to it. It would have been really easy for them to assure that by being consistent on their unwillingness to recognize, for example, marrying your second cousin, marrying an mm-hmm. underage person in Alabama or whatever. I like I'm not that asking. you automatically just picked Alabama for that. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, 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 <laughs> I thought the same thing, that. Sean. <laughs> No, is anyone offended? <laughs> That's no. not true, no. Sanger. Everybody, no, everybody was nodding yeah. along with that. Sure, you know. Um, but that's actually hilarious because there was a girl that I went to high school with who moved to. She basically did what you did, but to get married while she was in high school. Oh wow! So wow. there you go. There you go. Um, I don't understand why they didn't just say we're gonna 
not recognize any marriages other than outside of our state that don't align with the laws of our state's marriage. So if you get married in Texas to an of age woman who is not your first cousin, great, fine, totally cool. You can move to Ohio and we'll recognize it. But if you marry your 14 year old sister, we're not going to allow that. Why didn't they just do that? Well, because, and, and I might have this, this incorrect, but there there's the, the concept in the United States about full faith and credit and again, I might be pulling the wrong the wrong phrase, the wrong term out of my mind. Sure, none of us are lawyers, so correct. You know. <laughs> so, but but that's but that's the concept that the states generally respect and honor yeah. the laws from other states. So, mm-hmm. reciprocity. Soon, correct. So, as soon as Ohio became a state and wrote a constitution, and they decided these are the people who could marry. From that point on, they were recognizing all marriages from other states between two people of the opposite sex, of course, that could not be entered into in Ohio. So it wasn't like they they had to pass a law saying, well, we, we don't allow right. underage couples or first cousins to get married, but we'll recognize them. That was just done. It was just the way things happened. And you're right, Sanger. I mean, <laughs> be consistent. If you're not, if you're going to recognize some marriages that can't be entered into out of state or in state, but you'll recognize them from other states, recognize them all. Yeah, but- I know. I'm no attorney. You know, <laughs> did not go to law school. It just seems from a very from an outsider perspective, you got to go all in. You, you got to be consistent. You either say, "Hey, man, we don't care." Well, if if Utah wants to let you marry ten people cool. We're, we're cool with that. If Maryland wants you to let you marry same sex, we're cool with that. Or you go, none of them. It's Ohio's marriage laws or nothing. So were there any considerations that you and Al discussed that said, you know, if, if the state upon appeal makes this argument that could sink our ship that, you know, this, this is what we're concerned about, or, or was it just like, Hey, this is indefensible and we're going to win no matter what. It was mostly the second one, Sean. Okay. You know, I don't remember any conversation where we were talking about these are the potential arguments they could use at the Sixth Circuit. Mm-hmm. It really was, we are right. What yeah. we're fighting okay. for is right. It's what the Constitution, in essence, demands. So we just expected, and I expected them to continue with those same ridiculous arguments that they had started with to begin with. So from the Sixth, Sixth Circuit, where did it go from there? In December of 2014, the Sixth Circuit, it was a three-judge panel. They released their decision on this consolidated case, and they ruled against us. In essence, they said, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Michigan, you can continue ignoring out-of-state marriages between same-sex couples. You can continue refusing to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. So at that point, you know, John had been been gone for about a year at that point. And it was the low, it was really the low point for me. I was still grieving, still figuring out what life was and we had now lost, but there was no way I was going to let that be the end of it. Because from my perspective, if I didn't keep fighting this, I wasn't living up to my promises to love, to love, honor, and protect John. And there was no way, there was nothing that was going to keep me from doing that. So when Al asked if I wanted to keep fighting, I said, well, of course I do. So that meant filing cert, the official term for appealing to the Supreme Court. So we filed cert with the Supreme Court. And in January of 2015, the court announced that they would 
hear arguments in the consolidated case for these these cases from the four states in April of 2015. So from there, um, when the Supreme Court took the case, um, I, I want to make sure that we un, I understand the context of everything mm-hmm. that legally has not just like administratively happened, but um, allowed for this to even be argued. So the Defense of Marriage Act passed in you know the 90s basically said we're going to allow the states to not um, choose to not have reciprocity if they want on marriage specifically because the full faith and credit clause in the Constitution says if we issue a driver's license in Kentucky, you've got to accept that in Tennessee. Otherwise, we'd have licenses. We'd have chaos. Yeah. We'd have mm-hmm. chaos. Every you'd have to you, you just you wouldn't be able to freely move between the states. Well, in '96 or '94, whenever the Defense of Marriage Act was passed, they said, "Okay, but with with marriage, you don't have to do that." And then did that got repealed in 2013. Shortly, yeah, 2013. So that meant that what Ohio was doing was totally legal for a period of 20 years or so, and then was no longer legal because there was no federal law supporting it, which meant the only thing that we have to rely on is the Constitution. Not quite. So when the Defense of Marriage Act, the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, in essence, that said, the federal government for purposes of Social Security, everything that is a federal level thing, the federal Mm -hmm. government will not recognize same-sex marriages, period, for any reason. And in 2013, when the the Defense of Marriage Act was found unconstitutional, that was because of Edie Windsor, United States versus Windsor. Edie and her wife had been together for more than 40 years. They had gotten married in Canada, and her wife, Thea, passed away from MS. And they lived in New York. And after Thea passed away, Edie got a tax bill combined tax bills from the state of New York and the federal government saying, well, we don't wreck that marriage doesn't exist. So you don't get the spousal benefit of inheritance. So they, they sent her a tax bill. I'm going to forget the exact amount, but it was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars that she was being told she had to pay. And Edie said, no, so she filed the lawsuit that struck that ended up bringing down the defense of marriage. Yeah, I, I remember this vividly as a yep. as a financial advisor when that happened, uh, how that impacted a lot of the clients that I work with on uh, their financial planning. You know, their right. estate planning, their uh, ownership of property, uh, beneficiary designations. You know, all of those types of things. Not to, you know, not to even mention hospital access and hospice access. Correct. You know, all the other types of things, but. Uh, yeah, I remember that vividly. It was yeah. a, it, it was, was a big, huge, big issue. It was huge. Yeah, it was. So even even with that decision coming out and the federal Defense of Marriage Act being found unconstitutional, that had nothing. That did not impact state level Defense of Marriage Acts. Ohio had its own state level Defense of Marriage Act, so that was still in force. But mm. what what Al Gerhardstein did, his realization was well. After reading the decision from the Supreme Court on Windsor, he's like, a lot of the the rationale they used in this decision, well, if it applies federally, it should also apply at the state level. So it was really his team 
taking apart the Windsor decision to find all of the rationale, the arguments, the, the decision points the Supreme Court used on that case to say, well, if it applies federally, it should also apply to the state level. And it would have continued to apply, and those state level defense of marriage acts would have continued in power regardless until someone challenged them like we ended up doing. So tell me if I'm correct on this, Jim. Windsor basically said, hey, federal government, you have to recognize mm-hmm. what the states say. Obergefell, as a case, says states, you have to recognize what other states say. In essence, yes, that's okay. the easy way of thinking it. Windsor was federal. I like Obergefell the easy way made it all 50 states. <laughs> that's what we yep. need. <laughs> well, especially when it comes to law. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, yeah, that I remember when the case was decided and it was a celebration because people instantly recognized this effectively for all intents Mm -hmm. and purposes makes same-sex marriage legal nationwide because all it's going to take is one state to say we allow this and then essentially all of the other states Mm -hmm. need to um, need to recognize it need Mm -hmm. to recognize it at what point did you recognize the extent to which that 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 single decision would transform marriage for everyone in the country, not just Ohio, not just Cincinnati. Changes the fabric of everything. But everything. Yeah. Can I point out a specific point in time when I had that realization? No. Yeah. But it had to have happened sometime between or sometime during the time frame when Ohio appealed to the to the Sixth Circuit and those the four states, our cases went to the Sixth Circuit and it was struck down. And they they overturned our our wins. So it was that time frame. Maybe it was specifically after the Sixth Circuit ruled against the four states, all of our cases, or in favor of the states. Maybe it was that point when I realized, wait, now we're going to the Supreme Court, and what the Supreme Court says goes everywhere. So Mm -hmm. if I had to say a specific time, my guess is it was sometime around between oral arguments at the Sixth Circuit and their decision just thinking, well, if they rule against us, the next step is the Supreme Court. So I would say sometime in the fall of 2014, going into the Supreme Court appeal. Yeah, I can't imagine feeling. <laughs> Can you imagine, imagine that, that. You're, that you're going to, you know, the case that you brought is going no. to the Supreme Court? What was the level of confidence or hesitancy or what were you feeling knowing, okay, my case is now going to go to the Supreme Court. This is happening. You know, I don't know if this is this was silly on my part or if it was just my kind of Pollyanna outlook on life and my my general optimism, but I refused to think we would lose. I never once allowed myself to to waste time or energy thinking, well, the Supreme Court could rule against could rule against us. I just refused yeah. to do that because in my mind we were clearly right. We were right under the constitution, we were right as far as being human beings. So mm-hmm. I just never allowed myself to think we would lose. Interesting. That's a healthy mindset, right? You can't control it. Right. You're not deciding it. So there is no benefit to worry. How, how long does it, it take to go through the Supreme Court process? So you, you get a date, you show up, you sit in the court chambers and watch them, you know, watch that happen. How long does that process take? Well, it's going to vary for every single case because Cases start at different times. They make it through their their appeals, their circuit courts in different time frames. So there isn't really a typical, you know, okay. I really look at our case and it was less than just less than two years from 
the moment we filed in federal district court to the Supreme Court decision, and less than two years to the Supreme Court is relatively quick. But for yeah. me, for this for this experience, you know, we the Sixth Circuit ruled against us in December of 2014. We appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court accepted the case in January of 2014 or 2015. I'm sorry, and they said oral arguments will be on April 28, 2015, and you will have two and a half hours total to argue in front of the Supreme Court. And we're going to split it into two two arguments. An hour and a half, you have time to argue the right to marry. And the other hour, you have the time to argue the right to recognition of out-of-state marriages. So the time frame in court, two and a half hours. And I was there for the full wow. two and a half hours. But of course, there's time leading up to that, you know, standing in line in front of the Supreme Court to get a ticket to be in the courtroom. That's time. Um, the yeah. legal team. You had to get a ticket? Well, the Supreme Court did say about a month in advance, plaintiffs, if you want to be in the Supreme Court, we will set aside a reserve table for you, but a reserve seating. But you cannot be in the courtroom for the full two and a half hours. You can only be in there for the hour and a half right to marry arguments or the hour right to recognition ar- arguments. And I want so you to be can there only, for the- hold on. That means you can only listen to one side. Well, no, you're, you're, your hearing, you're hearing both sides. You're hearing you're hearing both our oh, our okay. attorneys fight, d- argue why we deserve the right to marry, but then you're also hearing the states argue why we don't deserve the right to marry. Yes. And then the same thing with the right to have our out of state marriages recognized. So you're hearing both sides. They just split it into two different arguments. Okay. Point blank, the right to marry, or if you get married in another state, the right to have your state recognize that marriage. Okay, interesting. So, but I wanted to be in the courtroom for the full two and a half hours. So sure. I ended up um, standing in line on the sidewalk in front of the Supreme Court oh. to be in the courtroom. And John's Aunt Paulette was with me. For your me own case. For my own case. <laughs> and, you know, there, there's some risk involved there because they only set aside, I mean, the, the courtroom itself. Can you imagine if you didn't get a ticket? <laughs> Right. <laughs> you're like, I mean, my name's on this. The guy in front of you gets the last one. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> right. So, um, but Aunt Paulette and I were in the courtroom for the hearing and we were just seated out in the public seats. So people really had no idea that I was the name plaintiff. So sat through the two and a half hours and court came to an end. And then of course, you know, the let's gather on the, the plaza in front with everybody who's out there, all of the media. So you know, in essence, April 28th, I spent a day being busy with the Supreme Court, but truly only two and a half hours inside the courtroom for oral arguments. And then once I walked out, it was April 28th, and knowing that the Supreme Court's term ends in June, and they typically hold off on releasing their big decisions until right at the end of their term, I thought, well, it's April 28th. Their term ends in late June, so I have at most two two months to wait for a decision. So I started going back to D.C. to be in the courtroom on their decision days. And they only, in advance, schedule Mondays as decision days. And they can mm-hmm. add more days, but that's, the, that's what they start with. Mondays, they have decisions, but you don't know what decisions. So I was there on Monday, June 15th. I was there on Monday, June 22nd. And at that point, we all thought, well, it's going to be Monday, June 29th. But as we're on the plaza in front of the courthouse on Monday, or on, yeah, on Monday, June 22nd, someone came running out and said, well, they just added Thursday, June 25th as a decision day. Someone came Why did running they out. Do that? 
Um, if they have more decisions to do, they'll just yeah. add more days okay. as necessary. So another person came running out. They've added Friday, June 26th as a, as a decision day. Now, I was there with Al, other plaintiffs and attorneys, and we all looked at each other and said, it's going to be Friday because it was June 26th. United States versus Windsor came out on June 26th. Lawrence versus Texas, which struck down anti-sodomy laws, came out on June 26th. So suddenly we thought it's going to be on Friday, June 26th. So I was there again on Friday. Well, I was there on Thursday, June 25th, no decision. And I was back there on Friday, June 26th for decision day. And again, for all of these days, I stood on the sidewalk in front of the courthouse to be in the public seats. So at the the point that the decision was made, uh, Jim had passed away two years prior? Yeah, John, let's see, this was- John, um, John, excuse me. Oh, that's okay. It happens all the time. And I never, I'd never take offense. You got two one syllable J names. Come on, man. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Sanger, no, no need to apologize or feel bad. Um, our, our families would do it. And I always took it as, as a compliment. Call me John. I think John's a pretty amazing person. So, yeah. um, you know what? Because we're united in marriage and that, and then, you know, go. we're one flesh. Okay, exactly. Anyway, so you're so, saying. Well, I completely forgot what you asked. <laughs> <laughs> so John, John had passed away. Yes. Um, John passed this away. Decision. Yep. He passed away in October of 2013. So, so now it was June 26, 2015. So not a year and a half. Let's say a year and a half. Now, this entire effort was started by your motivation to honor his legacy. And for the rest of us, you know, I know where I was at the time. I wasn't thinking about John Arthur. I didn't know. Right. Um, and I wasn't thinking much about Jim Obergefell, but right. I at least I knew what the name represented, right? How did you put the focus back on John in your own life at a time where the whole world is, or at least the whole country is focusing elsewhere? Sanger, I love that question. Um, you know, for me, when we filed our lawsuit, it was John Arthur and Jim Obergefell versus Mike DeWine and John Kasich. But when John died, his name had to be dropped because a dead person can't be a plaintiff in a case. And I always, that always bothered me because it wasn't just about me. It was about both of us. Uh, oh, man. Right? But throughout throughout those two years of the case, I talked about John all the time. I was talking about him every single day in all kinds of situations. And a lot of people would say, Jim, isn't it really difficult for you to talk about John and to talk about his death and everything all the time? And my response was, no, it actually, it helps me. It's helping me deal with his loss because I get to keep him alive. He's in my mind, he's in my heart, and I'm talking about him all the time. So from that perspective, every time I was speaking, whether it was media, a speaking engagement, an event, I was talking about John. So I kept him alive. And, you know, after the decision came out, I've really just done everything I can to make sure he isn't forgotten. I mean, one of the most amazing things that happened just this past October, I was in Cincinnati in the Northside neighborhood, which is Cincinnati's historic neighborhood. And their neighborhood development corporation had a piece of property and they decided to develop a 57 unit affordable living senior, affordable senior living development. And they were going to gear it towards the LGBTQ plus community. And they reached out and asked, Jim, could, what would you think if we named it John Arthur Flats? 
So now there is John Arthur Flats, a home, 57 units in Cincinnati, named after my husband. That's an amazing thing. There's a street in Cincinnati that's named John Arthur and Jim Obergefell Way. So, and it's right on the corner where our condo was when this case began. And really all I do is I talk about John all the time. He's, he's alive for me and I keep him alive for others. And I really love that I can do that. So I don't know if that necessarily answered your question the oh, way you were expecting it saying it. absolutely <laughs> answered the question. One of the biggest responsibilities that I believe I have in order to do my job effectively as a wealth advisor and to live up to the standard that I should do my job is to help people focus on creating a legacy for themselves and honoring the legacy mm-hmm. of their family, their father, their mother, their spouse, um, so that one day their own children can honor their legacy. And it's not as easy as it sounds, and it doesn't sound easy at all. And, and there, it's challenging for a lot of reasons. Self-awareness can get in the way, right? A lack of um, emotional awareness can get in the way. I don't want to talk about death when I'm no longer here. That's not fun. So we'll not do any of the work, right? Or um, people will focus on tactical decisions like, well, yeah, I guess I should update the will. And then it's not even the will, right? Right. It's about you carried on not having ever met John. I know that one of the values that was important to him of being open about who he was had to have necessarily influenced all these decisions that you made about being able to so confidently say, I'm going to pursue this case. Um, And I think that's amazing that you weren't out before you met John, (laughs) you met an out man. And then you were comfortable saying, man, I'm going to go to the whole country. I'm, I'm totally fine going to the whole country. And if that wasn't something that was important to him, you know, I don't know, maybe it would have been a little bit different. Um, but that's that's honoring the legacy and that decision yeah. that you made. Uh, it's honoring his legacy and the decision to, you know, uh, allow um, the neighborhood and the street to be named in his honor. And and that that's it's it's so cool when I get to see people who make decisions and say, you know what, I'm making this decision not just on what's important to me, but because I know intimately what was important mm-hmm. to this person who I want to honor. Like, I think that most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we want that outcome. We want someone to be our Jim Obergefell. We want somebody to say, hey, I'm going to carry on the legacy of me when I'm gone. I want that. You know, I want that for myself. I want to be, I want to be gone and know that people are going to not only remember my name, not only keep me alive, not only speak good things about me, but say, I know Sanger and I know what's important to Sanger, so I'm going to do this because of it. Um, that's what true legacy is. So that, I love that. Like, I think that's really, really special. And I can only imagine how you felt immediately following to be able to stay so in tune with him. Yeah. Not everybody has somebody like Jim to carry on that legacy, which is a shame. It's a, a lot of people, a lot of people don't for a lot of reasons, you know, some people are unlucky. Some people, a lot of people don't want to talk about it, but not talking about it is, you know, and you were in a unique spot where you knew you you, had to talk about you and John (laughs) both knew death was coming, you know, but I wish that more people. I don't want more people to have to be on their deathbed to talk about it, but I wish more people could say, Hey, you know what? We're both healthy. Why don't we talk about it now? Mm -hmm. You know, and not, and, and I don't mean talk about 
well, so oldest child's going to get the house, youngest child's going to get the bank account. No, that's that's tactical. It doesn't really matter oh, at I, the end of you the know, day. When I, Talk about what's important. Hey, in this family, we do this. This is important. Mm-hmm. And this is what I hope that one day when you are a steward of the wealth that I'm currently in possession of, that you can go use this to further these values. And people just the, don't talk about it. The values, not the things. And, you know, I... It's weird. I've, I've said this multiple times. The only positive thing I can say about ALS is, you know, the end is coming. Yeah. There's yeah. no other way this is going to, to end. And it's coming sooner rather than later. And I don't know that motivation or just that realization that this isn't something that is going to get better. It's not, it's incurable. It forces, it, at least it forced us to really think about things differently than we would have if we were just growing older together, living into our 70s or 80s like we thought we would. So it, it gave us that push and that realization that life is coming to an end and yeah. what what really matters to us. So you you still carry on John's legacy, but now with a wine company. Correct. How, how did you get started how did how'd you get in that, man? <laughs> you know, I, I still find it hard to believe that I, I co-founded a wine label and it happened truly because of someone stalking me. So I was... <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. I hope that I have such a positive outcome up with a negative experience. <laughs> well, well, stalking, not in the incredibly negative, harmful, okay, okay, okay. scary way. Yeah. So in December, or December, in March of 2015, I was in DC for something. And I was out walking, I was walking along the tidal basin, and I got a phone call, didn't recognize the number. So I answered. And it was this guy named Matt Grove. And he said, Well, Jim, let me tell you a little bit about myself. But also, I got your number because my ex wife and you have a friend in common. And I've been following your story. And I have a business idea. And I'd love to get together and have dinner and talk about it. So we ended up meeting in New York and had dinner. And how appropriately, considering we launched a wine business, we had several bottles of wine with dinner. And he told me about himself. He started the first organic beef company in the United States. He owned a winery in South Africa, and he did a lot of import into the U.S. And his favorite aunt, his Aunt Marilyn, she was a lesbian. She lived in Texas. In the 70s, she worked for NBC, and she got tired of having her male colleagues tell her, get me a cup of coffee. And she had she had gotten pretty much as high as she could in that industry at that time in the 70s. And she just decided, no, I'm tired of this. I can do these jobs that they're not letting me, and I deserve to earn the same amount of money. So Aunt Marilyn, Marilyn Schultz, she filed and led the first major class action lawsuit for gender pay and opportunity equality in the workplace, Schultz versus NBC, and she won. It took about eight years for that to finally happen. So she had passed away. It had happened recently, um, within the past year, I think, from when Matt called me. And he remembered being in Texas and being with Aunt Marilyn's partner of decades and realizing that wait, she has no input, no rights, no anything for the life they built together. And he was thinking, well, I want to I do a wine to, to honor Aunt Marilyn. And then he said, he's, he, said he went to Google and um, Googled marriage equality. And the first thing that popped up 
was my face and my story. <laughs> so, huh. So he, we just talked about it and we decided to launch this business, Equality Vines. And our whole goal is to support organizations fighting for equality. So every wine we release is tied to an organization fighting for equality. So when we sell a bottle of that wine, we donate to that organization. We have wines that support LGBTQ rights, women's rights, immigrants' rights, and we'll continue to expand that as as the label grows. And it's been an amazing experience. We have we're well over two hundred thousand dollars that we've donated to to our partner organizations, and we have a tasting room in Sonoma County in Guerneville, right on the Russian River, and it's it's been a great experience, and people love it. When I'm in the tasting room and people come in, just hearing them say wait, you mean I get to drink this really good wine and it's helping an organization that cares about doing good? People really connect with with our mission and it's really been a great experience. That's funny. I'm glad that you, you answered a question I probably would have forgotten, which is when you look at all these um, labels that you have, they're very obviously gay rights um, focused, right? Stonewall, The Decision, et cetera. And then there's get your own damn coffee. I was like, what the, like, what the hell is that? Dude? Right? <laughs> that one does stick out. Doesn't it? It, yeah. it does. I, I have to admit that's, that's probably my favorite label because I love yeah. it's a, it's a single unbroken line drawing of, of the woman dressed professionally, like with a briefcase next to her. And I, I love that label and I, I love the name. I just think it's fun. Yeah. People, people get a, get a chuckle out of that. Oh, so it's yeah, even that, funnier that's when why. You, yeah. When you know the story. Well, yeah. I had, I had told Sanger about that before we, uh, before we got on start recording, we were, we got on the site, we were ordering a couple bottles for some uh, friends bars. It's well, great. Fantastic. That one jumped out at us. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I also say that the thing I love about this, you know, we don't produce our wine. We partner with wineries and winemakers to make wine for us. And we've had wineries, that have never, ever made wine for someone else, make wine for us because they respect, love, and support our mission and what we stand for. So it's been a great experience. That's that's really neat. And and that's another example of living out your values, saying, hey, you know, we're going to... we're going to pursue a cause that's important, a value that's important, and make money doing it, uh, which I think is possible no matter what your values are. Right. You know, um, it, and the more in tune we can be with what is truly deeply important and what are the causes and the impacts that we want to have on the world, the better decisions we're going to make. You know, it's, it's easy to say yes when you know who you are. And that's what's so, that's what I'm picking up on your story, Jim, is at all of these points in your life, you had decisions that other people might not have made. Other people might have gone the other way. Other people might have said, I don't want to be public. Um, with who I am. I don't want to tell my friends and family who I am. Um, I don't want to pursue this legal case because it's going to be long and it's going to be out there and it's going to be hard and it might be scary and we might lose. And, and I don't want to start this wine company because that's a whole, you know, there's a mess there. And now you, now I'm an entrepreneur and that's a financial risk. And there's always a reason to say no, but when you know who you are and you know, what's really important saying yes is obvious and quick. And yeah. and saying no is like almost not even a consideration. Well, I, I love that saying, or thank you. And, you know, I also have to say one of the things that makes me happy with myself and about myself is just the people I've known my entire life. They keep me grounded. They keep me who I am. And to hear again and again that 
they're like, Jim, you're the same person I got to know as a senior in high school, or Jim, you're the same person I've known since the age of three. And that really makes me feel good because, you know, I've gone through a lot of things that I, that have the potential to change people and not always for the better. Yeah. So I feel, I feel I'm happy with myself that I feel like I have kept who I am. I've kept true to that and it's really how I live my life. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. The, uh, you know, one of the things that Sanger and I both work on when we work with people around their financial planning is looking at how do we go beyond just who gets the stuff in, mm-hmm. in estate planning and really transforming wealth to a point of significance. And one of the things that I always tell people is that it's, it's more than who gets the stuff. It's what do you want that legacy to be and how do you carry forward the values that you hold dear to the people and organizations that you care about? Just listening to your story, I don't know that I've talked to anybody that's done a better job of carrying forward that legacy for somebody that they care about than, uh, than yeah. what you've done. So it's really, a, it's really been inspirational to hear your story and all the decisions that you had to make along the way. And some of those weren't probably easy decisions. Some of them had probably some big consequences, but I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us, Jim, everything that, that you went through and all the decisions you made. Thanks for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me on this. I, I have to say, this has been a different conversation that I've had and I've really enjoyed it because it's given me a chance to think more deeply about why did I make the decisions I did? And, you know, it's, I got to say, it's nice to to have this conversation and realize, yeah, I'm still happy with the decisions I've made. They were the right ones. I'm glad you feel that way. Where can people um, buy a bottle of wine? Equalityvines.com. So it's vines with a V, equalityvines.com. And I also have a website, obergefell.com. Um, in case anyone's out there looking for someone to officiate a wedding, I do officiate weddings. I click the ordain nice. me button just like Aunt Paulette did. So... <laughs> <laughs> Nice. We'll we'll put the links up too. That way, yeah. people can find them. Yeah, it'll all be um, in the show notes, and they don't have to worry about how to spell Obergefell. Right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jim. Thank you both. I really enjoyed this. Have a great day. My takeaway from our discussion with Jim about decision making is really one of the things we had talked about when we spoke with Doug Linick some time back. And that was one of alignment. If you draw a line between who you are to your goals, to your actions, all of those three things need to line up. And I think when I look at the decisions that Jim made, there was a real clarity in who he was and understanding how he was going to express that, uh, who he was in not only his decisions to pursue the case all the way to the Supreme Court, but then beyond that in starting the quality vines and having a wine company basically that is carrying forward that legacy of John and carrying forward really sort of through who he is. That is exactly my takeaway as well. What Jim and I talked about at the very end of the podcast was one of the more profound conversations that I've had about understanding who you are. If you can decide who you are, make an active decision about who you are, who you want to be, who you want to become, all of the action, what do I do now questions are very easy to make. And it's interesting to hear his story because of all the people that I've had the privilege to talk to, of all the people we've had the privilege of talking to on this podcast, I think Jim really stands alone as someone who knows who he is, knows what's important to him, and makes decisions based on that. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. 
We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.